Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Romans 6 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes and says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you in particular for this portion of it, the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, in which we have the gospel so clearly and wonderfully laid out for us, and we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you will enlighten our minds today, that we might have a greater understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a greater understanding of his saving work, especially as it makes an impact in our lives. Come by the power of your Spirit and help me as I preach and help all of us as we hear uh, to hear, as Jesus said, with great care. Uh, We have ears to hear. We have ears on the sides of our heads. We ask, O God, that we might use them with our minds and hearts fully engaged so that we might receive with eagerness and with faith the things that your word says to us, and that we might indeed produce fruit a hundredfold for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Maybe you have heard someone say something like this. We're saved by grace. And so we shouldn't be focusing on things like sin or obedience or commandments. If we do that, we're nullifying grace. If we do that, we're being more legalistic than we are Preaching grace. 
Maybe you have heard people who have said things like that. Maybe you have, at some point or other, said things like that yourself. Or maybe, if you've never said them, you've at least thought them. Why focus on sin if we're saved by grace? That's not the exact question that Paul raises here at the beginning of chapter 6 in verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But we could say those are questions that come from the same root as that question in Romans 6, 1. And in terms of the people who think that way, well, we shouldn't focus on sin. We shouldn't worry about sin. We shouldn't get all concerned about keeping commandments and things like that. If you just quickly read through Romans chapter 6, you'll notice that Paul didn't get the memo. Paul does not think that way at all. And when Paul even raises the question, perhaps that someone might hypothetically think that way, Paul has a lot to say to denounce that kind of thinking or that kind of speech. We're in Romans, and we've just finished chapter 5. I did mention that there are a couple of items I'd like to get back to, and God willing, I'll do that in an adult Bible class in one of the coming weeks. But we're going on to chapter 6, obviously, and let me just set, uh, give the setting of where we are in Romans, following the outline of Charles Cranfield in his commentary on Romans. I did, I've mentioned this before when I think when we came to chapter 5, I did this. He goes back to chapter 1 and verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, and then Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. And Cranfield says that in chapter 1, verse 18, going through the end of chapter 4, Paul explains how it is that the just shall come to life, or better, how the just shall become just, how they shall become righteous people. It's through the work of Christ, and it's through faith in Christ. But then he says, starting in chapter 5 and going all the way through chapter 8, Paul expounds that those words shall live. The just shall live by faith. In other words, how will the righteous live? And he says, Cranfield says, the next four chapters tell us how those who are made just, who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, how they shall live, how they shall conduct their lives. And here's his outline. Chapter 5 says that their life is a life characterized by peace with God. That's how chapter 5 begins, you remember? Having been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. And then he says, chapter 6 tells us that the life of those who have been made righteous by faith is a life characterized by sanctification. That is, by holy or godly living. And then chapter 7 is, tells us it's a life characterized by freedom from the law's condemnation. And chapter 8, a life characterized by the indwelling of God's Spirit.
So this morning, we're beginning chapter 6, beginning to look at it. Chapter 6 tells us that the Christian life, the life of a justified person, someone who has believed in Christ and had his sins washed away and been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, his life is a life characterized by sanctification, or another way of putting that would be a life characterized by holy living. So the passage starts out in verse 1 with what I'm calling a likely question. The whole heading is this, a likely but bad question. That's verse 1. What shall we say then? In other words, after what Paul has just written, what shall we say? What conclusions can we draw? Or maybe we could say, what practical implications could we make and then he raises this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, it's very possible that Paul has heard people, uh, reports from people who've been to Rome. Remember, he'd never visited that church in Rome. Maybe he had heard that there were actually some people in the church there asking that question. Shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound? Or maybe he's heard people in other places where he has traveled and others with whom he has interacted, whether Christians or non-Christians. Maybe he's heard that question. Paul, in light of what you're saying about the gospel, should we just sin so that grace may abound? Or maybe Paul is just thinking, this is a question that might come to people's minds in light of what I've just been saying, starting in the last half of chapter 3 and going through chapter 5 verse 21 even though uh, he didn't have verse chapters uh, chapters and verse numbers whatever the reason was that Paul raised it it was a good question it was in that it was a likely question but as i said it was really a bad question why might that question arise? Why might Paul raise it? Or why might someone else have raised it and Paul wants to address it? Well, it's easy to figure out how it might arise. In his explanation of the gospel, Paul has been saying that if someone is saved, if someone has his sins forgiven, if someone has been justified by God, if someone has been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, it didn't have anything to do with his own good works. In other words, if you're a Christian, it's not because you're such a good person. Your sins haven't been forgiven because you've been so good these last several months or these last many years of your life. That is not the reason that you're a Christian. That is not the reason God pronounces your sins forgiven. That's not the reason that you have a hope that you'll be in heaven someday. That's not it. It's not by works, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, lest any man should boast about being saved. That's not it. And he, he demonstrates painstakingly that it's all by grace. It's a free gift. It comes through the work of Christ and not through your works. And then we come down to the end of chapter 5 when he's been saying in the last half of that chapter, it's, you're, you're either condemned initially 
because of Adam's sin, and he's your representative, and he's the one who opens the door to hell for all people who come into this world other than Christ, or if you're spared the pains of hell and you're welcomed into glory in the last day, it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus Christ. As I said, Adam is the federal representative of all mankind. Jesus is the federal head or representative of all those who are saved. And if they're saved, it's not because of their own works. It's all because of his. Let's look at verse 19 of chapter 5. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And then Paul says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that, that sins might abound. Then he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So someone might hear all those things or read them and then think, all right, my, my, my obedience won't save me. And if I'm saved by, by grace, my sins won't condemn me. And not only that, but Paul says the more sins there are, the more grace abounds. In other words, there's more of it. And then we conclude, you know, grace is a good thing, not a bad thing. The more of it there is, the better it is. The more glory will come to God. So maybe we should just continue in sin that grace may abound. That's the kind of thinking that Paul is assuming someone might engage in and then ask this question. Well, shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? Since you just got done saying, Paul, that the more sin there is, the more grace abounds. And grace is a good thing and it brings glory to God and we want to bring glory to God. Paul even wrote about his own life in 1 Timothy 1 that he was a very terrible sinner. He persecuted God's people. He killed people because they believed in Jesus. And he, because of that, he wrote in 1 Timothy 1, I am the chief of sinners. But, he said, it was all for a good purpose. To show how great God's grace is that even someone like I could be forgiven. So someone might at least be tempted to think, maybe this is a good question. Shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we, even though we're Christians, shall we just live sinful lives? Or at least let's put it this way, not worry so much about whether we sin. Not worry all the time about God's commandments. Because that's kind of a drag anyway. And when just magnify the grace of God. And if someone says, well, you're sinning, we say, you don't get grace. That's the idea. Paul raises some similar questions in chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. 
we won't take the time to go look at those things. Let me just drop down to chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and notice how Paul does something similar right in the midst of this chapter. Again, it says in chapter 6, verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. All right, so just like that statement in verse 20 of chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That might provoke a question, shall we then sin that grace may abound? This statement in verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace, could also provoke a question. So Paul asks it, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law? but under grace? In other words, well, it doesn't matter then, does it? I mean, we can sin, you're saying, Paul, and we're not going to be zapped by a lightning bolt from heaven because we're under grace. And we're not going to be sent to hell on the day of judgment because we're not under law, but we're under grace. That's the idea. So we could say, at least in chapter 6, there are two likely but bad questions. Well, you've shown that they're likely, but are they really bad? Well, yeah, they are. And we can see that by looking at Paul's answer, which starts in verse 2. So he really is answering this question in verses 2 and beyond. <clears throat> I'm just going to focus on the first few verses here today, and we'll even come back to those in a future uh, message here. But let's start by looking at Paul's answer in verse 2. And the very basic answer that he gives there in verse 2 is absolutely not. We should not sin so that grace may abound. It may seem like logical reasoning. It may even seem that it's reasoning that could have a good motive. Well, if sin abounds, grace will abound even more. And we do want grace to abound, don't we? And we do want God's grace to be magnified, don't we? So it could, it could seem logical, and it could seem like it comes from a sincere motive. But Paul has no time for it, if you will. He just answers it beginning with those words, certainly not, or as I just said, absolutely not. We came across that back in chapter 3 when he raised another question. And Paul said, certainly not, absolutely not. Some translations say, may it never be. Don't even think about it, in other words, Paul is saying. No way, that's his answer. Absolutely not. Don't think that way for a minute, shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound. And the second part of his answer there is, as I said, we died to sin. Notice he asks a question, and it's a rhetorical question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In other words, he's saying we should never even think that way. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? In a sense, he's basically answering the question this way. No, you should not continue in sin that grace may abound. You people that I'm writing to there in Rome, in the church at Rome, you're Christians. That kind of thinking should never, ever enter your mind. 
You shouldn't think I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter if I sin now. You shouldn't think that way. Excuse me. You shouldn't think that way. What's his point when he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, he goes on in the following verses to explain that, starting with verse 3. And here's his point in verse 3. It's this. The baptized were baptized into Christ's death. So the baptized were baptized into Christ's death. Now, I said, in effect, that Paul is saying when he asks the question, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In effect, he's saying, you're a Christian. You shouldn't think about going on in sin. You shouldn't think about continuing in sin and thinking it's no big deal. You shouldn't think, it doesn't matter how I live now. I've got my ticket to heaven. I've got my fire insurance that keeps me out of hell. Doesn't matter how I live. You shouldn't think that way, he's saying. And I said, in a sense, he's saying, we're Christians. But when Paul asks uh, this rhetorical question in verse 3, why does he ask it that way? In other words, why does he bring up baptism? You see how he does that. Or do you not know that as many of us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Why didn't he just say, like I said, we're Christians? Why bring in baptism here? Why not just say, well, we're disciples of Christ? We obviously shouldn't do that. We shouldn't live that way. Why baptism? Well, let me give you a, uh, an answer to that, and I'll start out by giving you a negative answers. In other words, um, not for these reasons. He's not saying we who died to sin, or, or here, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's not saying it because he expected that all the people there in the church at Rome were baptized as infants. In other words, obviously you've all been baptized because you're either Christians or the children of Christians and you've all be, been baptized so you shouldn't live that way. All right? That, that is absolutely not what Paul was saying. He's writing to people because he believes they are genuine Christians who have individually believed in Jesus and have begun a life of following him. That's who they are. They're genuine Christians. So he's not talking about everybody having been baptized as a child. That's not Paul's point. Furthermore, he's not saying that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, meaning that he believes that if you were baptized, that means obviously you have been born again because that's what happens whenever you're baptized. There are people who have believed that throughout the history of the church. Martin Luther taught that. Lutherans believe that. They believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. That is that at the time you're baptized, for Lutherans, it would generally be a baby being baptized in a baptismal font, having water poured over his head. Roman Catholics believe this as well, that when the water hits their forehead, 
that it's at that point that their sins are washed away. In the case of a Roman Catholic, it would be their original sins. But that's what baptismal regeneration means, that when someone is baptized, they're born again at that moment because of the baptism. And that is not what Paul is saying. That is not what Scripture teaches. Furthermore, he does not mean when he says, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Neither does he even mean that he's just talking about a spiritual baptism or a spiritual blessing. In other words, he's not talking here about water baptism at all, someone might say. In fact, many people say this. They're ta he's talking about spiritual baptism. He's talking about someone who comes to faith in Christ, and when he believes in Christ, whether he's anywhere near a baptismal font or tank or not, whether he's anywhere near any water or not, as soon as he believes in Jesus, believes the gospel, he's baptized into Christ Jesus and therefore baptized into his death. I don't believe either that that's what Paul is saying. What I believe he's saying is this. When he says, as many of us as were baptized, he means as many of us as were baptized in the church with water baptism, like we're going to see happen to three people tonight, they're going to be baptized. And Paul's referring to that. And he says it because I think, this is my understanding of it, I'm not going to take time to expound this today. I think. It's basically, he's saying it because baptism here is standing for the entire process of someone having been converted. Kind of like on the day of Pentecost when Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, let me get it real quickly and read it. Peter said to the people who was, were listening to him, preach, to him preach, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is the baptism, is that what washes the sins away? Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Is that it? Is that what Peter was saying? Was Martin Luther right? As soon as you go into the water and come out of it, that's when your sins are washed away. No. Peter is saying basically this. The same thing Paul was saying in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, when the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Paul gave the shortest possible answer, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Peter gave what is substantially the same answer, but with different words, repent and be baptized and your sins will be washed away. That's what I think is being said here. Paul focuses on baptism in part because I think it's simply something that represents their conversion. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, to Timothy, he said, remember when you made the good confession before, before many witnesses. I better re-look that up real quick because I don't want to misquote it. 
fight the good fight of faith, he says, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Well, that's what I believe the brethren who are going to come here tonight and be baptized in this tank, they're going to be making a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, everyone who's here this evening for the service. That's what will go on. And I think that's what Paul is saying here as well. You who were baptized, in other words, you have turned from your sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and publicly professed it. It's like your baptism is the crowning piece, the finishing piece of your conversion, if you will. I thought of it this way. Years ago, when my son went through Marine Corps boot camp, he told us about what went on in the last three days of the boot camp. They went through something that was called the crucible. And since I had to refresh my memory, I looked it up uh, yesterday. I'm just going to read the little definition that they give. It says, The Marine crucible is the final 54-hour training exercise that tests the recruits on the knowledge, skills, and values taught throughout training. Those who complete the final challenge are awarded their eagle, globe, and anchor. That's that little Marine Corps insignia. They get it pinned onto their uniform. And then it says, which symbolizes their transformation from recruits to Marines. And we could say it is baptism that symbolizes the transformation of any person from a mere worldling, from a sinner, into a child of God, into a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was not ascribing any saving efficacy to the sacrament of baptism he was simply saying, using the word baptism, first of all, as something to represent, like the marine, a transformation from one thing to another. That's what baptism represents. That's part of the picture of baptism. You go down into the water, it represents what? You're having died to sin, died to yourself, died to the world. You come up, what does that represent? Well, it represents what we're going to see as we go through Romans 6. Life, spiritual life, life in Christ, resurrection life. But not just in the future, but what begins now. What begins because I have come to Jesus and I have had my sins washed away and I have had the Spirit of God put within me, etc. That's what's happened from the perspective of the work that God has done in everyone who is baptized. We could look at it from the believer's perspective. What happens in baptism? The, bap the baptized person in baptism, in his baptism, as he makes the good confession, as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, He's basically standing up in front of a bunch of people and saying this, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's it. It's a significant thing in the life of a person. It signifies that he has become a true follower of Jesus Christ. But there's another thing, another reason why Paul would use baptism because that all makes good sense, maybe, what I just said. But there's another reason why he uses baptism. 
and it's what I was just hinting at, that baptism pictures some of the significant elements of conversion. I just described some of them. Death to sin, baptism pictures that. Life in Christ, baptism pictures that. And one of the most significant features of our salvation, <clears throat> because this is what, what baptism pictures, one of the most significant we could say one of the most determinative aspects of a Christian's salvation is union with Jesus Christ. And baptism pictures that. And this is what Paul especially focuses on in this passage. It's one of the greatest and most important things about our salvation, union with Jesus Christ. John Murray, the... Um, Presbyterian um, theologian who used to teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia wrote a book that many of you are familiar with. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend that you read it if you want to understand what the Bible teaches about salvation in Christ. He wrote the book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And here's one of his statements in that book. And he's right on the money with this. He said, Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Now think for a minute. We just got done with Romans 5, and it talked about the way that a Christian is saved. If he is saved, it's because of what Christ did and what Christ did representing him. So if I'm a believer, and if I'm going to go to heaven one day, it's not because of anything I did or ever will do. It's because of what Christ did, Romans 5.19b, by one man's obedience, that's Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous. That would be, include every one of us here who's a believer. So I'm not saved by my obedience, but by Christ's, my federal head, well, how did that happen? Well, it happened this way, that God chose me before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says, in him. And that when he died on the cross and destroyed sin there on that cross and suffered my punishment there on that cross, the reason it benefits me, again, is because of my union with Christ. I was in him then. And then, Murray is saying, not only in its once for all accomplishment in Christ's finished work when he was on the cross, not only was I in him then, but also he says in its application, when do I come to experience and enjoy and even begin to understand that reality of union with Christ? When does that happen? It does, didn't happen in eternity that I understood it. Didn't happen that um, I understood it when Christ died on the cross. I wasn't even a gleam in my father's eye, as we like to say it, then. It's when I believe in him. And so the point is that that's when I came to experience union with Jesus Christ when I actually was saved through belief in Christ. And Paul represents the whole 
picture of salvation in this word baptism. When we were baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. And then the third point I want us to notice, and I'm just going to do this very briefly because like I said, we're going to come back to these statements. But the third thing I want to notice is that, that, that we the baptized, we the baptized were thus buried and also raised. And that's verses 4 through 7. Let's just read those. Therefore, he says, following that truth that he stated in verse 3, as many of you as were baptized, or as many of us as were baptized, were baptized into Christ's death. Now verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. There's part of the symbolism of baptism. You go down into the water. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that's what happened on the third day, the first day of the week, he rose from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, Paul says, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So that's a lot. And I just want to touch on it. You see the point? We the baptized were thus buried and were also raised. But let's just notice for a moment the significance of being raised with Christ. In verse 5 he says, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Some people say, well, obviously, since it uses the future tense, we shall be. It's talking about the resurrection on the last day. We've been united together in the likeness of his death. Here in this life, we've died to sin. One day, we'll be united in the likeness of his resurrection. But, but Paul doesn't say that, that it's talking about the day of resurrection. Notice what he says in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In other words, no more, a Christian should say, should I be a slave of sin. And Paul would even say it this way. No more am I a slave of sin as a Christian. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Again, the future tense is not used because it's talking about the day of the resurrection. The future tense is used to talk about from that moment on, and it's used to make the point of the certainty of this reality. You're a Christian? Then sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the idea. And it's, it's, that point is, is made very, very clear by the end of verse 4, which says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Just trying to take the whole Bible into account. What is the Christian's walk? 
It's his life. It's the way he lives. It's not talking about walking on the streets of gold in the new heavens and new earth. Sorry about that. But that's what it is. It's about this life. I mean, our walk then will be newness of life also. But a Christian's life here and now is newness of life. And so you see why, in answer to this question, whether it was actually raised by actual people in the church at Rome, or whether it's just a hypothetical that Paul says, don't go there, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is absolutely not. You're a Christian. You shouldn't even entertain such thinking, Paul is saying. So I want to just give some more general implications, observations, applications in the remaining time. And then we can get more detailed and so on as we go, as we study this passage. But here are three things I want us to notice and to take to heart. The first thing is this. We have in this passage a juxtaposition. I couldn't think of a better word. So that, uh, that means putting two things close together or side by side, all right? We have a juxtaposition of grace and sin in the Christian life, in Christian thought, in Christian teaching. That's what we have here in this passage. Or we could say, as we go on farther into chapter 6, a juxtaposition of grace and sin. Obedience, because as we get to the last part, especially of, of um, chapter 6, Paul's going to focus a lot on obedience. The first part, he talks about sin, whether we commit sin or not. There, it's about obedience. As you see, for instance, in um, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. So he puts grace and sin right together. He puts grace and obedience right together. I wish I could take us back to the last sermon that I preached. It was three weeks ago on Romans chapter 5, which there was this great emphasis on the grace of God in Christ this emphasis on the fact that salvation is all about the work of Jesus Christ. It's not about your work. It's not about you being so careful to keep from sin. That's not how you're saved. You're not saved by being so careful to obey all of God's commands. That's not it. And I don't remember exactly all the things I said, but I do remember when I was preaching it thinking, this is so wonderful. This is so glorious. I wish I could take us back to that moment for this reason, because when Paul wrote Romans 6, and certainly when, when Romans 6, 1 was read in the church at Rome, it came not three weeks after the teaching of Romans 5, which said, it's by one man's obedience that we're all made righteous. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And then let's sit on that thought for a few weeks. 
it was just, like I said, no chapter divisions. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul, why would you have to spoil that great teaching about grace by immediately jumping into the subject of mortifying our sins? Man really did not get the memo. There's a notion, brethren, and we live in an age in which this notion abounds. There's a notion that grace means we just stop thinking about sin. We stop talking about sin. Certainly, we don't preach it from a Christian pulpit. One commentator wrote this. I think his words are excellent. I, could, I can't take the time to tell you all that he's saying here, but just listen. Paul is here concerned to insist, number one, that justification has inescapable moral implications. In other words, you do think about sin. And the thing you think is, I can't just go on in sin. I've got to be careful about this. That's the first thing. Justification has inescapable moral implications. Second, Paul is concerned to insist that our righteous status before God involves an absolute obligation to seek righteousness of life. In other words, as Christians, brethren, we should constantly be basking in the grace of God, the reality of the forgiveness of all of our sins through Jesus Christ's death. And we should be rejoicing in that, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Like I said when I preached Romans 5, every single day of our lives, but not to the point that we're not constantly conscious that we have an absolute obligation, I'm borrowing Cranfield's words here, to seek righteousness of life. In other words, to live in a righteous way. And I'm obliged to do that. May I say it? It is my duty as a Christian. And he says, Paul is concerned also to insist thirdly, that to imagine that we can receive righteousness in Christ without at the same time laying hold on sanctification, holiness of life, is a profane absurdity. Let me translate those last two words. Profane means ungodly. And absurdity means it makes no sense. And it's absolutely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on then to say, of how much ostensibly Christian living, some people, it looks like they're a Christian, they say they're a Christian, of how much ostensibly Christian living, they say it's Christian, is the thought behind this question the real, if unacknowledged, presupposition. In other words, people might never say, oh, I just believe that we can sin so that grace may abound. Many Christian, professing Christians would never say that, 
But what the commentator is saying is if we looked at their lives, you would almost come to that conclusion that that's their stated doctrine. I think he's right. Brethren, one of my first points here is this. My plea to you is don't let yourself get that way. Don't ever start thinking that way. We can just sin. Grace will abound. Don't worry about it, man. Don't you let yourself even think of it in a subconscious way. In the more subtle ways that people do it. Because if you do, it could well ruin your progress in grace. And it could lead to the destruction of your soul. And the souls of any who listen to you or look to you for guidance. You know, well, Mom, you know, that it seems like Pastor said something that was really hard to swallow today in the sermon. Yeah, I know, I think he was a little over the top. Can you demonstrate that from the Bible? Don't say those kinds of things if it didn't really happen. Or, well, you tell your children the Bible says this, but you don't do it. You see what I'm saying? Be careful, brethren. If you hear people say, or if you hear your own heart say, well, you know, those Puritans are so legalistic. Why do the pastors quote the Puritans all the time? Or Reformed theology, I mean, they're so legalistic. Or those Reformed Baptists, or Pastor Chansky. This is Paul. In fact, better yet, it's the Holy Spirit, brethren, who speaks in Scripture. Could there be a clearer, stronger way to proclaim salvation by grace than Romans 5, 12 and following, from chapter 5 all the way to the end of the chapter? Could there be a clearer and stronger way to proclaim salvation by grace than that? In other words, to proclaim sola gratia, by grace alone are you saved. Solus Christus, by Christ alone are you saved. The obedience of one man, not your obedience. Nothing you do can save you, only what Christ does. Could there be a stronger way to proclaim soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory? There couldn't be, I don't think. That's what we all sensed when I was preaching that last half of Romans 5. And someone might well ask, could there be a better way to tarnish those great doctrines of sola gratia, solus Christus, solus Dei, sola, soli Deo Gloria, than by immediately running to this subject of sin and the importance of obeying God and living the Christian life by striving against sin and mortifying. Could there be a, a, a better way to ruin those great statements? I mean, maybe for the last three weeks, you've still been in the clouds in a sense, sensing the thrill, the excitement of salvation by grace through the work of Christ. And now Pastor Chansky had to go and ruin it for you. Brethren, we should look at it this way. In Romans 5, 
Paul dwelt on how grace makes us righteous. That's it. It's by Christ and his work and that alone. In Romans 6, Paul is dwelling and he's going to dwell for the whole chapter on how grace makes us live. That's his point. And both of those truths, brethren, this is how we should look at it as God's people, both of those truths are great. Both of those truths are glorious. Both of those truths are biblical. And we should give thanks for this instruction that Paul gives us here in Romans 6, right on the front end, about how we live the Christian life. And brethren, we should also rejoice in the things we read here in Romans 6. We should rejoice in the power of God that doesn't just enable his people to live lives of righteousness and godliness. We should rejoice in the power of God that, well, I'll put it this way, makes his people live lives of righteousness and godliness so that we can say that we are not under uh, the law, but we are under grace. Therefore, sin shall not have dominion over us. We should rejoice in the freeness of salvation in Christ, and we should rejoice in the great power of salvation in Christ, because those are the two word, ways that the word grace is used in the Bible. You are saved by grace, not by works. It is the gift of God. And as Paul said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm stopping there because I could rush through my last two points, but I'm going to try to remember, and now I did remember, we just had a time change, so I'll bring it to an end. But let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and the greatness and freeness of salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to believe all that the scripture says about the Christian life, how we enter into it, how we do not contribute to our salvation, but how we are called to a life of obedience and conformity to the image of Christ especially as we think of it in these terms of resurrection. If we have died with Christ, that means we've also been raised with him, raised with him to newness of life, raised with him in such a way that we should walk in newness of life. Help us, help us to take these things to heart, encourage us greatly and strengthen us for the glory of your son. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.